To everything, there is a season. That is the heartfelt message behind The Taste of Country Cooking by Chef Edna Lewis. This beautifully written book contains reflections and recipes from her early life in Virginia and is a loving call to not only think about, but to experience food in season. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hello, Kim. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm so excited for this season. And you know, so much has happened in my life since we last were together. I've been to Tokyo, Japan. I've been to San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. And I got COVID. But I'm on the mend. So if I sound a little funky today, that's the reason why. How are you? What's new? I am great. I have been nowhere. But... <laughs> <laughs> But I'm really good. Just and really enjoying the winter here in Montana and all the things that go along with it. We actually had this thing called skajoring, which I had never experienced before. It's something that must be fairly new because when I lived here, they didn't do skajoring. Or if they did, I didn't know what it was. But essentially, <laughs> they make all these big mounds of snow and skiers ski behind horses what? And go over these jumps. So it was what? it was pretty cool. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Oh man. I really want to damn, I really want to see this. <laughs> it's sounds, pretty cool. It it's pretty, pretty cool. Fun. I'll, I'll I'll share some photos with you by Please. Facebook. Oh yeah. I yes, thank you. And you know, it's funny you say you, you know you haven't gone anywhere, but there's a lot to be said about being home. And honestly, this book that we're gonna talk about today is has been a guiding force for me in helping me to kind of better understand what it is to be home. You know, when you live in a metropolitan city, you gain a lot of opportunities, but you lose some too. The home in which my family lived when I was in high school in Southern California had a great patio where we could eat brunch on the weekends, but not so much to have planters to grow vegetables, definitely fresh herbs, but no squashes, tomatoes, kale, anything like that. And our Southern California lifestyle didn't lend itself so much to gardening anyway. I spent time as a teenager and young adult either studying, really studying, I mean it, or at the beach or just hanging out with my friends. And when I ate fresh fruit or vegetables, not nearly as often as my mom would have liked, they came from a grocery store often, you know, big chain like Vons or Safeway in those days. Trader Joe's hadn't quite become the family obsession that it is today. And when I talk about local, it was in the sense that it was probably grown in California, although I never really cared about where it came from, if I'm honest. I never really thought about where my food was coming from. California of the early 90s was an almost literal cornucopia of produce. There were just some foods that were always available no matter what the season was. Onions, potatoes, carrots, celery, spinach, artichokes, asparagus, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage etc. 
There also seemed to be a perennial supply of fresh apples, oranges, limes, lemons, grapes, strawberries, and more. Pretty much if I wanted it, I could get it. And this bounty was something I took for granted until I moved to the Midwest for college. Now, I was experiencing real quarterly seasons and not just sunshine and rain, right? Those are like the two right. seasons of California. <laughs> it's either raining or it's sunny. It's usually more sunny than it is rainy. But like the idea of winter, spring, summer, fall, they're kind of like they all blend together. When I was living in Ohio, I was now faced with real quarterly seasons. <laughs> the Winter and spring were very different. The tiny grocery store in our town carried mostly just staples and some of the fresh vegetables on which I had relied for my favorite dishes, but they were more expensive and I noticed they were all imported from California. And this was confusing to me because I'd left California to broaden my horizons, but I'm still eating California foods. And that dysphoria grew when I went to other big box grocery stores and noticed that all the produce seemed to be from somewhere else, either the West Coast, usually California, or Mexico. Meanwhile, I'm driving by acres upon acres of farmland growing corn and soybeans, but I'm buying vegetables from out of state. And that was just really confusing to me. So it was no small relief to eventually move back to California because, well, at least my produce didn't have to cross state lines to reach my dinner plate. And I kind of just left it there for a while. That thought about, well, where's my food coming from? And what is what does it mean to eat locally or seasonally? Until I first heard about Edna Lewis and her very special cookbook, The Taste of Country Cooking. And I'll be honest, it was 2017. And the book was mentioned on the reality cooking show Top Chef. Well, at least we know there is some proof that good does come from those reality TV shows. <laughs> that actually what I heard was that the book had kind of started to fade a little bit into some obscurity, but sales quadrupled after that Top Chef episode that referenced this book. So I'm one of the herd, I'll admit it. But at least one good thing has come from watching reality TV shows. And I almost didn't pick it up because I very mistakenly believed that the cuisine reflected in the book was going to reflect a style of cooking and eating that wasn't necessarily appreciated within my own family food ways. My immigrant American diet largely avoided most of the stereotypical American comfort foods. Instead of eating mashed potatoes and meatloaf, we had babuti with basmati rice. Dishes like fried chicken, biscuits and gravy, southern barbecue were actually as exotic to me as our Durban curry and English Sunday roast were to my friends' families. But the more that I fell into learning about foodways and food cultures, the more that I began to embrace the foods that form the backbones of some of our best and most important heritages in the United States. And by now, I think it's obvious about me that I'm deeply curious and intensely excitable about discovering and pushing boundaries. And what I mean is that I love messing with the edges between what it means to live a city life versus a country life. My personal foodways are deeply rooted in city life, having nearly everything available year round. But I ask myself, how can my life and well being change, probably for the better, if I embrace the ways and means that are the hallmark of country living? And, well, what is country living anyway? Who could possibly have written a more eloquent, thoughtful, and soulful guide to this than Edna Lewis? Last season in episode 43, 
We talked about two women who made enormous contributions to American food culture and recognition of soul food as a major culinary movement and tool to build communities, chefs Dookie Chase and Edna Lewis. Leigh, you shared with me and our As We Eat family some of the history behind the development and publication of Edna Lewis's book, The Taste of Country Cooking, and with your permission, I'd like to recap some of her biography here. Edna Regina Lewis was born in Freetown, Virginia in 1916. Freetown itself was born from a group of emancipated slaves in 1865, people like Edna's grandfather, Chester Lewis, who built houses and planted orchards on some acres of land sold to them by the former master. Life was tough, certainly by modern standards. They farmed, fished, and foraged for the majority of their foodstuffs and bought sugar, salt, and spices from the general store. They threshed their own wheat, cooked over wood-fueled stoves, used wells and streams to keep food cool, but they were independent and they were free. And this was Edna's home for her first 16 years. In a 1984 conversation with documentarian Phil Audibert, Edna described her life in Freetown as so, quote, If someone borrowed one cup of sugar, they would return two. If someone fell ill, the neighbors would go in and milk the cows, feed the chickens, clean the house, cook the food, and come and sit with whoever was sick. I guess rural life conditioned people to cooperate with their neighbors, end quote. And at 16, Edna headed north, first to Washington, D.C., and then to New York, where she worked as a seamstress, copying designer dresses for a select clientele. Her dinner parties brought her the opportunity to cook for her friend Johnny Nicholson at his new Cafe Nicholson in 1948. This restaurant was a big hit with bohemians and artists, people like William Faulkner, Truman Capote, Richard and Doe Avedon, Deanna Freeland were regular visitors. And it's here that she honed her craft with simple Southern-inspired dishes and her famous chocolate souffle. So I think that we need to take a beat here because you just listed several really important human beings in the history of the United States at the very least. I mean, we have William Faulkner. He's an American author who won a Pulitzer Prize for, for literature, a Nobel Prize for fiction. Truman Capote, who wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood. And if there are any true crime fiends out there like me, you definitely have to pick this book up. Truman Capote was also a friend with Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird, just in case anybody's forgotten their, <laughs> right? their English classes in junior high and high school. You have the, the Avedons. The movie Funny Face was based upon their relationship. Diana Vreeland, who was a fashion editor and columnist who worked for magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. She was also a consultant to the Costume Institute and MoMA, and people like Tennessee Williams also, who was oh, from yeah. the South along with Truman Capote, Gloria Vanderbilt, Marlena Dietrich. I mean, you had the who's who of pop culture and literature and the movie industry that were coming to this cafe to be fed by Edna Lewis, who was the only chef at the time at this cafe. So, I mean, it, I think it just speaks volumes to the soulfulness that she brings to the food and the soulfulness that she brings to the stories within this cookbook. Yeah, and creating an environment and creating a table 
that mm. was welcoming and inviting where you felt like you could come in and you knew you were going to have a great meal and that it wasn't a necessarily an academic exercise in eating, right. that you just were going to have a, a great time. And at a really interesting moment in American history as well, I mean, this cafe opened up in 48. Mm. You know, this is very much the pre-civil rights movement. Mm. And so there's a lot to be said about this wonderful Black woman who is able to bring uh, this, you know, into her restaurant, not only to feed them, but to keep them coming back over exactly. and over again, too. Yeah. Man, we salute you, Miss Miss Lewis. We salute you. After leaving New York in the mid-50s, Edna and her husband moved to New Jersey for a stint as pheasant farmers, <laughs> after which she opened and closed a restaurant that kind of has been lost to history. She started catering and teaching cooking classes, and she worked as a docent at the Hall of African People and the American Museum of Natural History. And this is now the moment that changed many lives besides Miss Edna's. Because on a snowy night, she broke her ankle. And while bored in her recovery, Edna agreed to collaborate with her friend Evangeline Peterson, a socialite, on a book of Edna's recipes. This is something that Miss Peterson had been asking for for a number of years. But, you know, Edna was too busy. Now she's got time. And here we go. We're going to write a book. <laughs> and I think that this relationship between Evangeline, this socialite, and Edna is very interesting because Edna actually was a caterer for Evangeline and did a lot of catering for some of her events. And again, going back to this fact that the menu at Cafe Nicholson was simple, there was no pretension in it. And I think that she catered the same way with these really mm. delicious foods. And for Evangeline to want to bring these recipes to life. And most of these recipes were really based upon the menu at Cafe Nicholson. So it was really interesting, this this relationship between the two women and how it brought them to another very powerful woman. Right? I love serendipity. And here is the most amazing example. Now, Julia Child had enraptured Americans with Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and it was her editor, Judith Jones, who was hungry for someone to do the same thing for American cuisine. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you told me this story, Lay, about that first meeting between Judith Jones, Evangeline Peterson, and Edna Lewis and her fabulous African ensemble. The first iteration of the book that Evangeline and Edna wrote together, the Edna Lewis cookbook, was fashionable, but it lacked some of Edna's reputed charm and sparkle. And Judith Jones encouraged Edna to tell her story about cooking and food in her own way and her own voice. Yeah, that was really an interesting meeting because really it was a favor, actually, to one of the executives at Knopf. He knew Evangeline being a socialite, and they brought the book with them that they had written, but it had already been published. So Judith really couldn't do anything. Judith has a preface in the cookbook. And she talks about how she was struck by Edna when she walked into the office. Mm. She was regal and she had this African style ensemble on that she had made herself. Remember, she started as a seamstress. Mm -hmm. She continued to sew for herself. 
And she had this scarf on and these dangling earrings that would swing when she threw her head back. So you (laughs) see this woman, this really elegant woman, very self-confident woman walking in her power, which again, we're pre-civil rights right now. And what a powerful woman to come Mm. into this space. And what, as you mentioned, Judith What she was struck by was the passion that Edna Mm. had when she talked about the recipes from Freetown. And that's what Judith wanted to bring to this cookbook that she and Edna would ultimately bring to the world. Yeah. So that brings us to the 1976 publication of The Taste of Country Cooking. The work is organized into four seasons. And there are several menus with recipes for each season. And I always love it when an author gives you Mm. menus because sometimes you get a great dish, but you're actually not sure what what to eat with it. I love that she had this complete thought about the meal from very beginning to end. So one menu for an early spring supper recommends braised four-quarter of mutton, thin-sliced skillet-fried white potatoes, skillet wild asparagus, Salad of tender beet tops, lamb's quarters, and purslane, yeast rolls and butter, blanc mange garnished with raspberries, special butter cookies, and coffee. I mean, it just sounds amazing. Mm. But in contrast, her menu for Christmas dinner calls for roast chicken with dressing, whipped white potatoes, baked rabbit, steamed wild watercress, lima beans and cream, spiced seckle pears, sweet cucumber pickles, grape jelly, biscuits, hot mince pie, persimmon pudding with clear sauce, fruit cake, coconut layer cake, caramel fudge, chocolate fudge, divinity cream, popcorn, a bowl of oranges, raisin clusters, Brazil nuts, almonds, blackberry wine, and coffee. It's definitely a very different meal. Very. But Man, that sounds so good. You can almost imagine this as being a completely community-centered meal with maybe somebody bringing one or two or three of each of these dishes or sharing the dish that was important to their family. And I love the fact that you talk about the menus because I think that, again, it puts you at the table with the people. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. different than just sharing a dish. You're sharing an entire experience. You're sharing the entire meal. And I think that's one of the most wonderful things about the way that this book reads. Oh, I could not agree with you more. The other thing I love about the writing specifically Mm -hmm. is how she includes these small vignettes in the chapter in winter. She talks about hog killing, which she manages to make it not as gruesome as it could be, but it's utterly imbued with the sense of we are doing this together yes and it's not you no longer have the singular cook in the kitchen trying to eke out a recipe and figure out what to do when why and how her writing is just full of the idea that the kitchen is full of people that there are folks around maybe they're not helping but they're waiting to eat and but just their presence is lending to the occasion the idea that you're not just feeding yourself you're feeding your family which kind of harks back to 
some of the themes that we were talking about last March for Women's History Month, when we talked about the idea of homemaking, it's very much that. And her language is simple. This is a woman who's incredibly intelligent, incredibly experienced, who feels no compulsion to throw highly technical cooking terms. The ingredients, it's funny because on one hand, of course, these ingredients are humble. These are things that are grown and available to her in this place at this time. I would be challenged honestly, to find purslane, although it's probably easier than I think. Haven't really looked for it, to be honest. So I'm not sure where to source wild watercress. Persimmons actually could, I could pull off up here in the Pacific Northwest. You know, I just love the fact that she's just not beating us over the head with her expertise. She doesn't need to. She's confident, as you've already said. Exactly. So I'll be honest, I'm still reading and unpacking this work. You could say that I'm savoring it like one might savor fine wine, because there is so much joy in the anticipation of reading a little bit more and allowing Edna's words and thoughts to culminate and settle. My copy is now full of handwritten marginalia, where I was inspired into thoughts about my personal foodways and my own culinary identities, about a long-form essay that I'd like to write about a really unique farming community in Central California that is not unlike Edna's Freetown, and that's Allensworth, California, and about how good it feels just to set your hands upon the preparation of a meal That is in harmony with the season outside your window, like a warming stew on a cold winter's afternoon or a plate of fresh ripe tomatoes just seasoned with some salt, pepper, and maybe a sprinkle of sugar. This passage from Edna's introduction has always felt really poignant to me. Quote, over the years since I left home and lived in different cities, I've kept thinking about the people I grew up with and about our way of life. Whenever I go back to visit my sisters and brothers, we live old times, remembering the past. And when we share again in gathering wild strawberries, canning, rendering lard, finding walnuts, picking persimmons, making fruitcake, I realize how much the bond that held us had to do with food. Since we are the last of the original families, with no children to remember and carry on, I decided that I wanted to write down just exactly how we did things when I was growing up in Freetown, that seemed to make life so rewarding, end quote. Mm-hmm. Except I, that I too have lived in many cities. My life could not be more different from Edna's. And yet there's this transcendent sense that by reading her recipes, you're having a conversation. Her recipes and notes are so clear that you feel as though she's standing by your side, ready with a hint of advice or a great story from her dinner parties. And even though some of her recipes aren't quite for me, I can't imagine fried pork sweetbreads or liver pudding happening in my kitchen. I appreciate that I get to know her a little bit better by understanding how, when, and why these foods were made. It's the clarity of her purpose and her drive to enjoy the literal fruit of labor and to understand and appreciate foods that come from your land and from your hands that helped me shift my focus towards eating in a more seasonal, intentional way. Because you posed a very thought-provoking question in our Family Recipes, Traditions, and Food Lore Facebook community recently, Mm -hmm. Lay. You asked, can comfort food span the season? And my immediate thought was, heck yes, because I am the queen of making soup in the middle of summer. But then I really started thinking about the absurdity of trying to make a salad full of summer vegetables in the middle of winter and really how unsatisfying it is to eat foods grown out of season. And for what purpose? How do we find our way home again? For me, I live on the divide between city and country. 
In an hour, I can be in downtown Seattle or I can be in the trees at the edge of Mount Rainier. And I struggle, really struggle sometimes to be at home. <laughs> and there's something in Edna's voice in The Taste of Country Cooking that through her writing and her call to living a life of mindfulness is a call to me to slow down and simply be in the place where I live. Describing a spring morning, she writes, quote, a stream filled from the melted snows of winter would flow quietly by us, gurgling softly and gently pulling the leaf of a fern that hung lazily from the side of its bank. After moments of complete exhilaration, we would return joyfully to the house for breakfast, end quote. And if I could, I would answer her. Our cherry tree shows tight buds that herald more light and more blue sky to come. Like a bride, she will cascade snowy white blossoms and then burst into tiny sour cherry beads that draw families of birds to feast. Although I will be lucky to taste one, I will find it lucky indeed to be able to taste the fruit of this sweet old cherry tree. I decided that one of my New Year food resolutions would be to try something new as often as I can. And we have a local spring and summer farmer's market where I can see, touch, taste the foods grown here in Auburn Valley. I resolve to eat as much as I can <laughs> that is grown seasonally and locally this year. I really hope that by doing so, I will leave myself open to what I will learn not only about myself, but about my community as well. And in the midst of this journey, I'm looking forward to consulting Miss Edna for her recommendations for apples, tomatoes, greens, and adding even more notes to my book for my own discoveries. I think that is a resolution to stick by. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do. I think that we have moved so far. Like you said, when you moved to Ohio, all of a sudden you were getting these this produce that had been shipped clear across the country when we have such a bounty of local types of foods that we could savor. I mean, really savor yeah. in yeah. season, as you have heard from what Kim has quoted from the book. Her writing is beautiful. It's evocative. Yeah. It's It draws you in. It makes you feel a part of the community, which I think is such a strong point of this book. I could not recommend this book more than, <laughs> than what we have already. And I hope that we've brought this book to life for you so much so that you will go out and grab a copy, whether you buy it from a used bookstore or if you buy it brand new, and if you do buy it from a used bookstore, I hope that you get one that has been owned by someone like Kim who has written things <laughs> in the margin. That is the best way to get a used cookbook, in Isn't my opinion. Fun? Because you meet a whole other person too. Because right. then you meet somebody who's also on the whatever journey you're on with the author. One of my aunts is a fantastic reader, which is one of the highest compliments I can pay for pay somebody in my life, honestly. And we had such a great time last summer talking about books. There's the book that the author writes. There's a book that the reader reads. And there's a third book that is where you meet in the middle, where you meet other readers. It's that third book that is my favorite place to explore. When I'm in used bookstores, I look for those books with marginalia because the previous reader has cared enough to engage and it becomes even more of a conversation, which is also what I love too about your vintage collections, your cookbooks, your recipe cards, because it's that it's the same kind of idea. It, it becomes a conversation between a community. And right. that's our thesis this season 
yes. is how cookbooks engender conversations, how they build community, how they define or exclude. We have a lot coming up for you this season and mm. even more about the taste of country cooking because next time, Lay, you are going to cook some of these beautiful recipes from Miss Edna Lewis. I am. And we're going to talk about what you have explored and discovered in doing so. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm so excited. I'm so excited about the recipe that I've chosen, the reason that I've chosen it. And actually, there probably will be two. For sure, one, maybe two, if I have the time. But again, through this cookbook, she creates this conversation with you. She pulls you in, she draws you in, and you find these similarities. And that's the reason that I have chosen the recipes that I have chosen and I'm very excited to talk about it Yay, in two I'm weeks in I'm our so next episode. To too. Yes. Yay. Can't wait. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. I am sure that it is really evident how excited we are about this season. So I know that you're not going to want to miss any of these episodes. Make sure that you subscribe or follow wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes to provide a rating or review, we would be forever grateful. Ratings and reviews are so important in helping us build community and reach more fabulous listeners like you. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We have three subscription tiers that help us bring these stories to you. Get the scoop at asweeat.substack.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project, serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a little bit of research, a dash of humor, and a lot of passion. Ba ba da da ba 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 